ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello and welcome to the Radio Times Doctor Who podcast, brought to you by the team behind RadioTimes.com. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name's Hugh. My name's Morgan. And this week, we are both, as are you, survivors of the flux, or survivors of survivors of the flux in the vast episode that we've just watched. Um, yeah, so obviously, uh, the penultimate episode of Doctor Who Flux has uh, finally gone out there. It had a lot to talk about. It was a pretty dense episode, and we'll be doing that later on. Uh, but first, we're going to kick off with some of our usual segments, starting with Who News? Uh, so with this week, uh, there was some interesting developments in terms of what we know about the Doctor Who New Year's Day special, the first of three final specials for Jodie Whittaker in 2022. Uh, so Morgan, I don't know if you want to fill us in. Yeah, so uh, this week we got our first uh, synopsis for the New Year's special and also some casting news. Still don't have a title, uh, title TBC, uh, but we know that Ashling B uh, is going to be uh, starring in the in the special, as is uh, Ajani Salmon. Uh, and we have our synopsis, which reads, uh, Sarah, which is Ashling B's character, owns and runs Elf Storage, and Nick, which is Ajani Salmon, uh, is a customer who visits his unit every year on New Year's Eve. This year, however, their night turns out to be a little different than planned. So it's it's more, it's more of a teaser, um, but we have our first sense of what the New Year's Day special is going to be about. Um, and we also know that uh, Pauline McLean, probably best known for playing uh, Mrs. Doyle on Father Ted, uh, will also be part of the guest cast, but we don't know who she's playing just yet. Also, the BBC have released uh, for sort of teaser image uh, for the special, which is the TARDIS kind of racked with these reddish mm. cracks. Um, and also, there's a interestingly, there's an infinity symbol um, in the tweet, I don't know if that sort of refers to maybe. I mean, they can't call it Doctor Who Infinity because I think that was a that was a cartoon uh, with David Tennant in already. I, I think, unless I'm making that up. But um, yeah, I'm kind of interested. I mean, the TARDIS has had a bit of bad luck of late. <laughs> it's, had a, it's had a rough old time. The TARDIS. I feel like it needs a break, right? I mean, and especially especially since you know we were we were I think we were talking about it last week about how uh, the, the TARDIS set is being has. It seems as though. From from what we're hearing, that the TARDIS set has been dismantled, as you would expect with um, Jodie Whittaker having having wrapped filming, so it's in its final days already. We know that this current TARDIS interior set, and they're really they're really giving it a rough old time on its way out. They're just battering it up. Might as well. It's coming down. What are they going to do? Yeah, no, so, I, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested. I'm especially interested in that little infinity symbol. I feel like that's one of those things that will make a lot more sense maybe once we've seen the end of this series and we're kind of getting into the build-up for the New Year's mm. Day special, which isn't much of a gap um, in a nice way. You know, it's, it's less than a month, so that'll be quite cool. Um, but yeah, so there you go. That's what we know about the New Year's Day special. Uh, and that was Who News? Just a short one this week, as with most weeks, but even shorter this week. Um and we will get to our review. But first, um, I'm going to talk to, uh, in our interview segment, Jonathan Watson, who is the star of this series as uh, playing various Sontarans, including uh, Rick Score, I think one of them was called, and Stark or something, or Skak. I think it was Skark, wasn't it? Uh, I should probably have checked this. But yes, he's playing various Sontarans. Um, and yeah, he's also, Blink and you'll miss him, he's in Survivors of the Flux at the end in the mm. big cliffhanger as the Sontarans are back for the finale. Uh, so we spoke to him about that and about his experiences on Doctor Who in general. Uh, and you can listen to that now. Well, the episode that people will have just seen when this goes out, um, you know, we sort of, we saw you earlier in the series, but now you're coming back, the Sontarans are back for the end. I mean, it's quite a 
big kind of cliffhanger moment. Was it kind of nice to know that, you know, you're not just in those first two episodes, you come back for the big showdown? Yeah, it was great because it, it originally uh, there was no guarantee that the, the Santans were coming back. There was the possibility. So I think in the first script, uh, I was... Uh, I was kicked over a cliff, uh, dead, and uh, that was thankfully that was rewritten, and uh, the, the the script now it went along the lines of me saying to Jody, "I will return." So uh, I knew then it was it was going to be okay. So uh, it was no, it was good to come back for the finale, and it was great to go back down uh, in the spring of this year to complete it. It was yeah, really enjoyed it. I mean, presumably, because you, you play a couple of different Sontarans, I think. Are, um, are you the same one that we saw in the last episode in the Crimean War and all that? Well, yeah, I was kept writing this but because I wasn't I wasn't an expert. But they're a clone race. Hmm. So all my commanders, they wanted them all to be um, the same, clone-like. So uh, uh, the, 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 the first two were Skark and Ritzkog, and I'm afraid... I can't remember the two and five and six, but uh, they're along the same lines, yeah. I mean, what was it like kind of seeing the reaction to, you know, those early episodes? Um, you know, I think people really loved your performance and Dan Saki as the other Sontar. And was it kind of great to get that feedback so long after kind of, you know, performing the role? Yeah, it was great because, uh, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't really know much much about this in terms. I mean, I stopped watching Doctor Who quite some time ago. Uh, but my son is a, is a huge fan, so he kept me right. But I didn't look back at any of the the, the stuff from uh, the, sort of the beginnings of the Santana story. I just did it the way I thought I should do it. And uh, but when I, I, the the fans' reaction has been so positive, saying you know it's got back to what they were, and you know a warrior race and less. Less of the comedic sort of approach to it. Still quite funny, but, mm. um, you know, the, the, the main thing is they're warmongers, and that's what you've got to try and get across. So, you know, people, people responded very positively about the, the way I decided the sort of route I took. So I was pleased at that. Relieved. <laughs> pleased. <laughs> uh, and, you know, no spoilers. Um, is there anything you can tease about what, we, what kind of thing we might expect uh, from the Sontarans in the finale? Are they, you know, are they severely on the march they uh, all i can say is that they they haven't changed they're still uh, you know looking for confrontation and uh, and destruction and all these things that they enjoy so um you know there, there's there's no little twist or anything like that so. <laughs> i've got to ask you know going back to the start of this you said you did this uh you know a couple of different spells how did you get involved in the very first place did you audition for the role came across you know your agent or did someone contact you yeah, what what happened was Andy Pryor, who's the casting um, director in the show, had a conversation with with my agent, and uh, my agent had said that she said Andy's been trying keen for a wee while to try and find something for you, and this came up, and uh, he sent two two scenes, couple of scenes across for me to tape, and uh, I taped them on the Saturday, and by the Monday or Tuesday, the role was offered to me, and. Wow. Uh, it was it was as quick and as simple as that, and uh, no, it was. Uh, and then not long after that, I, I travelled down to Cardiff, um, which was, I think it was still in lockdown when I went down to get all the the fittings and prosthetics done and everything like that. Um, uh, and then travel travelled down, spent about a month in my first spell, and absolutely loved it. I mean, it was it was great. I mean, everybody just made you feel so welcome from the minute I got there. So, yeah. I mean, what was it like working with the other cast, especially Jody? You had that great scene with in episode two where you guys are kind of facing off. Yeah, and yeah, it's quite a thing to see that now because when we shot that, the two of us were just in an empty field <laughs> and, and standing in rocks and shouting at each other. But she was wonderful. She was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, when you do something, when you, when you go into a long-running series, especially something as iconic as Doctor Who, you've got to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. And uh, to do that, you've got to feel part of it all. And that's what everybody um, 
was great, and especially Jody, she made she made me feel so welcome right from the off. So it was um, it was very easy to 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 get into you know the rhythm of things, and um, I I absolutely loved working with her and John Bishop. Uh, and then when we when I come back, you'll see that it's most of the stuff is with Craig Parkinson. Uh, mm. I have so it, it it really was it was it was a great job to do yeah obviously you know I'm sure something people have asked you before it must have been a hell of a lot of makeup and prosthetics how long did it get to did it take to get in and out of that um the Santaran look um every day it it took about three and a half four hours Oof. yeah yeah if you were yeah I mean I've said this in a number of interviews but if you were on set for eight o'clock uh, in the morning. I was getting up about half past three. Oof. So, uh, but it was great. It was fine. You just get into the, into the room, just go to bed early and, mm. you know, get on with it. Uh, but it took about three and a half, four hours to get into it. And it took about 15 minutes or maybe less to get out of it. All right. It just off quite, Yeah. Get <laughs> off quite quickly. Um, but it was, no, it was, it was, uh, it was comfortable to wear. It was a, it just helped everything, you know, get you the, into the character and everything, it was uh, it was a great help, and I thought the design was fantastic. Uh, mm. I thought they looked great. So costume as well, costume was all you know manageable. It was all you can move about, no problem. The most important thing you could go to the toilet, so that was uh, crucial that was relief. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, it's interesting you say that it helped you get into the character because I was wondering whether it might have been more difficult to act under, you know, that layer of prosthetic, like maybe you'd need to kind of go bigger. But you, it was kind of the opposite. No, it was. But no, the, 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 the prosthetics, it's, the, the facial stuff is actually quite light. Mm. And, uh, you know, you don't... Uh, I mean, I, I basically... My performance was more, more or less the same as, as it was in the tape when I did it without anything. So... No, it, it, uh, it, it was absolutely fine. The, 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 so far advanced now, the, the, the cosmetics and everything are just, you know, very, very easy to work with. And similarly, the, the teeth, usually they can be a problem. You know, you can, if they're not quite a right, the right fit, you can have a, a slight lisp or a, an odd sound. But the teeth that I fitted were absolutely bang on. And you just clipped in. And I just carried on as normal. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the things that could have been quite difficult, you kind of took in your stride. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, what was the most challenging part of doing this, do you think? The most challenging part of doing it was uh, climbing onto the horse, <laughs> which uh, I think was the biggest horse in Wales. Uh, <laughs> but uh, because, of the, because of the armour, you, you, your movement is slightly restricted. So my my main concern was if there was a a gunshot off camera or something like that, and the thing bolted, uh, it'd have been some time before you would be able to catch me again. But thankfully that didn't happen, and it was uh, it was it, the horse was great. But uh, that was the most challenging thing was getting on and off the horse. So yeah, I mean, what was your conversely? What was your favourite scene to film? Do you think? I think, well, do you know, that's so many. Uh, the very first thing that I filmed was executing uh, Dan Starkey in the middle of the night, yes. well, late on at night when we uh, first first arrived. And actually going to, to do it, I was, um, we were on sort of little quad buggies to go over the terrain. And we were going at some speed to get down onto location, down to the set where the spaceship was. And I could see it in the distance, and um, I was I was just so excited to to get there and actually actually do it. That was a that was a high point. But also the the one the the, the scene that you talk about on um, on episode two between me and Jody in the Crimea that was that was great fun to do. We we really enjoyed that. So yeah, these were a couple of the highlights. Um, you mentioned Dan Starkey there. I was going to ask about that. Dan's obviously played um, Sontarans in the show for years, yeah. um, partially because a lot of them can look quite similar. So even if you know his character got killed off, he could just come back. I mean, yeah. presumably the same could be true for you. And you know, would you be interested in you know coming back to play Sontarans over the years? Like he, I would love it. 
I would absolutely love to do it uh, because they, they, one of one of um, an actor that I had huge admiration for a guy called Chris Ryan. He used to do it way way back, uh, round about the beginning, maybe not the sort of earliest in times, but certainly um, before Dan Starkey's time. And uh, so to fall in the footsteps of someone like Chris Ryan is uh, a real privilege. So no, if I was asked to come back as a St. Arm, I would jump at the chance. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, there you go. We'll put that out into the universe. Uh, right, uh, Russell so, T. Davis, I think that's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russell, if great. you're listening. <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, yeah, I guess just um, final question. You know, you can't say too much about what's coming up. Um, you know, it's all, you know, very secretive. But, you know, from what you know about the story, how do you think people are going to kind of come away from that finale? Are they going to, you know, be devastated? Are they going to be sort of uplifted? I mean, what, what's the kind of takeaway, do you think? Well, I... I think that I think that well, the response has been so positive with this uh, this series. I think that they the, they will love the, the way that it uh, it sort of finishes up. Um, it's um, I can't say too much, but uh, it's it's very tricky. But I think it's uh, it's 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 a wonderful conclusion. So I hope I really hope the fan the fans enjoy it and uh, yeah, as much as I did, been part of it. Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan was honestly so nice, uh, and I hope that they do keep inviting him back uh, to be Sontarans like Dan Starkey uh, so that mm. we can talk to him again, uh, because that was lovely. Um, but moving on uh, and moving back in time, kind of, from that cliffhanger, uh, we should talk about Survivors of the Flux. Uh, so this was an interesting episode. Um, I'd say it was, we were talking about this slightly before. After last week, obviously, Village of the Angels was a real high for the series. I think everyone agrees that. Really, really popular. People loved it. I felt like Survivors of the Fox was always going to have a lot to kind of follow on from, also especially from mm. that great The Doctor is a Weeping Angel cliffhanger. Um, mm. And it obviously was quite a dense episode. I think that's fair to say. It had quite a lot of stuff to get through. I mean, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, when I'd seen the episode, the first thing I said to you was... was that was dense. It, den, den, dense is the word, right? There's a lot going on here. You've got various um, multiple plot strands. It, it felt very typical to me of this era of Doctor Who, yeah, where, where, where you're jumping about from uh, you know location to location, time period to time period, with the um, you know, the, the setting in all caps, um, <laughs> saying saying where, where, where people are. Um, and you have Yaz and Dan and Jericho in the past, and you have the the Doctor and Orsok or Tektayun, as we now know she is. Um, and again, that's quite dense mythology and I, I don't feel like this episode goes a long way to kind of catch you up on all the timeless child reveals it sort of assumes a lot of knowledge mm. um pl- plus on top of that you have everything that's going on with the grand uh serpent and he's playing a role in the in the formation of unit which i'm sure we'll talk about a bit more um later plus you have the stuff with bell plus you have the stuff with carvin easter plus you have the stuff with vinder um getting captured by passenger and meeting diane like there is a lot a lot going on which which i think um would be fine but for me this episode, the other word I used to describe it, it felt quite functional mm. um, in, in the sense of it, it exists more or less purely to move all the various characters, all the various chess pieces to the position that they need to be in for the finale. Um, so while I didn't I didn't dislike it, um, a, co- a comment you made, Hugh, was that you you didn't really know what this episode was about. And I think, I think that's fair. It does feel very functional. It doesn't feel to me like a... a a standout episode like so while while i didn't sort of actively dislike it it does back up the theory i think that the best episodes in flux have been the ones that are the least fluxy that's not a word but i've just i've just made it a word the ones that are the least arc heavy and have the arc kind of playing as the backdrop to something else whether that's you know war of the sontarans or village of the angels this was this was all arc right it was all about moving those as i said those chess pieces um into the place they needed to be for the vanquishers next week and also it was different arcs, wasn't it? It was like you have the Swarm and Azure arc, which is distinctly different from the Timeless Child arc. You know, like mm. the, the the Flux arc, and it turns out the Division arc and the Timeless Child arc are kind of tied together in a way, but they're not exactly the same thing. So you kind of have all those different things. And then, as you say, stuff with like Dan Yaz and Jericho in the past and this whole, oh, this magical prediction of, you know, when the world's going to end that was written on a pot 
but we heard about somehow, which we've got to find out to give us something to do. And I was a bit like, what? Why? And honestly, I kind of love, there's been a running sort of almost, not a gag exactly, but a series of like episodes airing on dates that the episodes are set on. So obviously mm. the Halloween apocalypse was set on Halloween. Um, Village of the Angels was explicitly the 21st of November, admittedly, you know, 1967. But um, interestingly, that w- in one of the trailers, you see um, Claire, Annabelle Shirley's character, saying 28th of November. And then that was clearly changed in ADR to kind of fit better. And then the fact mm. that um, Yaz and Dan and Jericho have found this date that's like, oh, it's the 5th of December. But what year? I'm like, hmm, I wonder. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, clearly the finale is airing on the 5th of December. So they doing that again they've basically done that mm. all the way through and it's quite interesting like it's kind of interesting like I, I they did that for um the big bang i think uh the matt smith episode they kind of had the world ending specifically on the day the episode was airing which you know it's quite fun but um it's better than that period in uh the david Tennant era where they had to put a year ahead all the time because of that year that rose had uh, been missing which was confusing well i mean sh- should we talk now about the unit dating uh, controversy i was about to say that that's even worse but- because uh, okay, this is incredibly niche uh, of incredibly niche fan interest, but this is the Radio Times Doctor Who podcast, so I'm going to go for it. Which is that there is, of course, Doctor Doctor Who fans who are familiar with the classic series will know that there is this unit dating controversy. This question, essentially, what it boils down to is the John Pertwee unit stories from the 1970s. Are they set? Uh, like Survivors of the Flux, are they set on or sort of around the time in which they were aired, or are they intended to be set slightly in the in the future? Um, and and there's evidence supporting evidence for both, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now that's that's one thing, but there's a a little fan pleasing uh, reference in in Survivors of the Flux to to the Brigadier or Colonel Lethbridge Stewart as he as he is at the time. And there's a little uh, voice cameo as well from from the character, but. But those scenes, which which take place when Unit has already been established, are set in 1967. Now, Unit was not established in the Patrick Troughton story, The Web of Fear, which aired in 1968. Previously, The Web of Fear was always understood to have either taken place in 1968 when it aired, or, as I said, slightly further off in the future. This now implies that... Unit was formed in 1967, which means that the Web of Fear was set before 1967. So the the latest it could be is 1967. I'm not sure if you stuck with me through that. Um, it made it made sense in my brain, um, but it, it, it essentially it complicates unit dating um, even further. If you want to read a slightly more, hopefully a, a slightly more um, cohesive uh description of, of what I'm banging on about you can you can read that on radiotimes.com I've written a little uh feature digging into the unit dating controversy a little more I like to I, every time you say a unit dating controversy part of my brain's like it must be tough to find love in unit you know <laughs> yeah no people have made that joke before it's like oh uh you know Joe Grant and Mike Yates got together in the 70s and there was some unit dating controversy that's uh, nice yeah <laughs> I think maybe that's a good doorway as well like that is that is an interesting because basically after I watched this I kind of was like does this line up was the brigadier mm. could he have been there when he was here and I looked it up and that's how we kind of started talking about this but I think more generally the unit stuff in this episode is quite interesting because what the big thing at the end of episode four was Kate Stewart turns up in the next time trailer everyone was like what the hell how's Kate there they haven't really announced that um and then in this unit is quite important to the story in a strange sort of way it's a little odd. I mean, I, th- I can't remember if I said this on the podcast, but I certainly wrote it down. I had wondered whether the Grand Serpent was going to kind of John Sim his way into, you know, the past and kind mm. of have a senior position. And that basically is, it seems to be what has happened. It's implied that he can time travel and that he may be, I think the show is quite careful to say that he doesn't found Unit, because I think maybe that was an idea, but then they were like, that probably wouldn't be great people wouldn't really like that but he's sort of like units already happening and he sort of is like around and it's unclear whether he actually does anything like whether he influences them in the formation or he just sort of gets himself in a position over the course of you know um kate stewart suggests it could have been only like a day or a week of time travel kind of just popping up at key points to kind of say like oh hey i'm here and i'm important so that he could be in a position to shut unit down later on that yeah. seems well, to the, be what the plan was. Uh, but yeah, it's a, yeah, li- it's a little confusing, I think. Uh, again, yeah, just talking about this episode being convoluted, yeah, the, the Grand Serpent's plan, I, I kind of had to talk it through with you afterwards to go, I think this is what he's doing, because it seems odd that he would... Uh, so in the early scenes with Robert Bathurst's character, where, he, where he's saying, oh, I'm setting up this organisation, this task force, and we're going to deal with extraterrestrial threats. And he's like, oh, how interesting, what a coincidence. And so it's implied that he knew that, and so... 
unit would have always happened, but he's inserted himself back into history so that he can, as you say, be an important part of the organization, presumably purely just so that he can later on be in a position to shut it down. So I, I, I so so that the Sontarans can uh, invade Earth uh, without any resistance from unit. And as it happened, so can the Daleks, um, as, as we saw previously when we first found out that unit had been shut down. So again, it's a little convoluted, but I think that's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, in this, it's like, it's kind of funny that in 2017, he was like, uh, I am going to shut down unit. Ha ha ha, this will show you. And then the Dark Society goes, oh, no, 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 that wasn't meant to happen. That wasn't meant to happen, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's not the invasion I'm clearing the way for. This is something This is something different. Just just hold off, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a funny one with time travel because obviously with time travel, it creates that he was always there. But I think the way mm. the show is trying to present it in this instance is that like, he is he has come from the position of wanting to do this Sontaran thing at the end and has sort of popped back over the course of a day. I think maybe that's why they put that detail in specifically to imply this hasn't been something that's been going on for a long time, even though it has from the perspective of linear time, it's getting very confusing. It's something that he has done kind of quite recently in the kind of life of the series. He has sort of again, it doesn't seem like he's actually like set up unit in a way that benefits him exactly it's just that like new unit was going to happen he couldn't stop it and he was like but maybe i can kind of put myself in this position obviously as well we got to say the grand serpent is like an alien from another world from presumably from vinda's world or at least from the sort of organization that vinda became a part of Mm. and it's kind of unclear what his goals are beyond like a mass power we kind of just saw him as this sort of shadowy figure then he's not in it again and then he's back for this so it's a bit unclear kind of what the whole story is there my you know the implication is in this episode i think that you know we saw that vinda's homeworld was destroyed you know um we hear elsewhere that like basically earth is one of the only planets left standing obviously a lot of people are going to turn up and a lot of very not very nice people are going to turn up to try and make use of the resources that are still there if the rest of the universe has been destroyed so maybe the idea is that this is what the grand serpent is doing he has a bit of time travel he's like i'm going to put myself in a position where i can deliver this planet to like some of the remaining nasty aliens out there and kind of get a lot of power and influence again albeit on this planet i think that's this plan <laughs> I, I I did enjoy how Kate was handed some dialogue to basically explain a lot of what was going on. Mm. So she's like, you don't age. And here's my theory on why you don't age. Here's also my theory on why no one has noticed you don't age. And here's also why you can't kill me with your pet snake. It was She gave, basically had a monologue where she cleared up a lot of the questions I previously had about the Grand Serpent's plan. I was like, well, I, pre, you know, presuming Kate is right, um, which by the look on the Grand Serpent's face, she was. Um, that, that, that does clear up some of it, I guess. Yeah, and then Kate goes off, nearly gets blown up. I do find it funny, though, when it's like that she's like, oh, you can't kill me with your choking trick, and the Grand Serpent's like, curses. And he just goes and tries to blow her up. Because I was a bit like, you could just hit her on the head then. Do you know what I mean? While she was in there, like, you could just got like, a little mallet and gone, boop. Like, ah, <laughs> uh, I'm psychically shielded. Like, are you shielded from mallets? I don't want to go for mallets so much, but I am. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, the, the kind of big takeaway from that, obviously, from a sort of story perspective, is that Kate says... She calls up Osgood and says she's going to go dark. She's going mm. to, you know, kind of disappear, which is why Kate has vanished from, you know, presumably from 2017, pretty much dead on. We saw her in 2015, didn't we? So that sort of lines up from 2017 until um, until present day. She's been gone dark. And then next week in the next time trailer, we see she's, you know, leading the resistance to the... Um, human occupation by Sontarans. Uh, mm. So, you know, that's, I guess, how she's going to kind of come into it. We don't see Osgood, sadly, but obviously we do get a little um, a little nod to the character. She calls her up. Uh, mm. So that's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like the unit stuff is interesting because it was so controversial when, um, you know, they had that gag about unit being shut down due to budget cuts, which I thought was kind of quite topical. I, I didn't really mind it, but I get why people were upset. Um, and obviously this is kind of a way to bring unit back and to sort of imply that there were sort of nefarious reasons for it closing down. But um, I do wonder, I feel like people might not take it the best way to sort of suggest that the unit, which everyone sort of loves, was sort of like corrupt. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like sort of flawed and sort of infiltrated for like its entire existence, which I don't think is necessarily what they were going for, but that is actually what they have made happen. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the whole existence of unit and doctor who's relationship with unit is interesting because that whole idea of you know they shut it down um because it would have been detrimental to the plot in that in in uh in that episode to have unit come in and save the day um whereas here 
in in the finale, presumably, it's going to be very useful for Unit or some form of it to be able to to save the day. And the Doctor's very opposed to Unit and its and its and its use of military force, except when he or she isn't and needs their mm. help. So it's you know, Doctor Who has always had a slightly complicated relationship with Unit. Um, but but fans loved Unit. Um, and yeah, I think I think you're right. This idea that it's kind of been uh, insidiously infiltrated from from the off um, might potentially. Uh, you know, set set a few teeth on edge, but but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the unit section. That's the unit unit of the podcast uh, taken care of. Very good. We should maybe talk about. I'm just thinking of all the different threads. Maybe we should talk a little bit about um, Danyaz and Jericho. I would say, despite my sort of jokes about their slightly pointless storyline, I thought this probably worked the best for me in the episode in terms of there was a bit of real emotion there with Yaz and the Doctor, and they're quite a sort of funny trio. I'm glad that Jericho's sticking around. Obviously, he's not got as much to do this week as he did last week. Mm. And I also kind of enjoyed the thing with the sort of comedy wise man who loves gossip. You know, I thought that yeah. was quite fun. You know, I've, I've pretty much called for a spin-off every week now. I called for a spin-off <laughs> for The Fugitive Doctor. I then called for a spin-off for Professor Jericho. I'm not going to go so far as to call for um, a spin-off for the gossip-loving hermit, but he was a great character, a great little um, uh, comic character. Um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed those scenes. I think Kevin McNally, like you say, he doesn't have as much to do here, um, and he's sort of out of his natural habitat. Um, but I think, you know, he continues to be a, a great guest performer. I really just, I really like the... The, the Doctor Yaz Dan um, dynamic. I, I, I yeah. I, I I think having the the Tardis team that we had before the Fam. Like sometimes it worked well, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes those characters were given a chance to shine. Sometimes they weren't. But I think this. I don't know if it's just a different you know the different mixture of characters. I don't know if it's the fact that there's less of them. But I just for me it just works so much better. I'm actually already mm. kind of really fond of this trio and hope that they continue um, beyond beyond just just flux um and you know i'm just going to come out and say it yaz is definitely in love with the doctor like that <laughs> that's that scene where, the, where they're watching the hologram is like that's not just like a, a friendly bond to me it feels like there's definitely something deeper going on there i would hope that that's maybe where they're going to go with it because partly because and this might just be you know me spitballing a little but you know if they're all leaving anyway they might as well you know, make Yaz and the Doctor, you know, kind of admit they have feelings, or at least Yaz admits she has feelings for the Doctor, because it's the kind of thing that I could imagine them kind of shying away from a little bit, because to be honest, just purely because I think it complicates things with the Doctor having changed gender and so on. I think it opens up a few questions that the show would rather not explore too much <laughs> mm. about, um, you know, about gender and sexuality and things. Like, I think I think that's the thing they don't want to kind of go too hard on. Um, but I feel like that would be a really kind of... Uh, in, I think it would be a really good thing for them to explore. It's one of the most interesting consequences of Jodie Whittaker's, you know, being the first female Doctor. And it's something, you know, this Doctor has had way fewer kind of romantic connections or kind of storylines than any other modern Doctor anyway. You know, except maybe Peter Capaldi's Doctor didn't have many, but he did have that thing with River Song. And I do feel like, you know, as you say, in this episode, the way that Yaz is looking at that, that is like, you know, that feels kind of romantic. It doesn't feel just like we're really good mates, does it? No, and it it may not be the way they planned it initially, but mm. sometimes these things can just kind of develop where when you see chemistry between two actors or and then gradually it kind of develops and certainly we've now reached a point where it, it, even if it's not reciprocal, Yaz is definitely in love with the doctor. The way she, the way she behaves, you know, even back in um you know the last New Year's Day special where she's basically obsessed with you finding the doctor again and Graham and Ryan have more or less moved on and Yaz is kind of living in the TARDIS or you know that other TARDIS and now she's kind of watching this this message. I mean, you you can't help but see the parallels between Vinder watching mm. Bell's message and then Yaz watching the Doctor's message. It's pretty much the same thing. Well, and, and, like, and Bell watching Vinder's message that he'd left her over and over again so much so that it might, you know, wear out. I think that's, mm. you know, a similar thing is almost said in this episode. Like, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, if they're not intentional parallels, then it's a hell of a coincidence. Do you know what I mean? Like that is, <laughs> they've missed a trick if that's not an intentional yeah. parallel because it is pretty clear, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, and sometimes I think a fan base might project certain things onto characters which were entirely not the writer's intention um, and then can end up feeling disappointed. But I think in this case, there's so much on-screen evidence, as I say, at least for the fact that Yaz is in love with the Doctor, that I do hope there is actually uh, some sort of payoff um, to the whole Tasman arc, wherever it's heading. Yeah, I hope so. Like, I'll be interested to see how they get back from 190... Is it... Were they now 1903? 
1904. by now. I love that yeah. bit where they're like, ah, we'll send this mission to Carbon Eastern. And Carbon Eastern sees it and goes, like, I can't time travel. <laughs> and it's just, oh well. Because <laughs> everyone seems to be able to time travel now, but it was worth a go. Yeah. Well, he can't time travel, but apparently he's just scanning all of human history for his own name is he just like is that just like a really extreme version of like when you google yourself yeah definitely. Is that, is that how, to, yeah. Be, to be fair i think that they are just sitting there apparently those those lupari you know they're, they're just like sitting in their yeah. ships they've been there for weeks they're really bored well, like, one, one of them one of them fell asleep apparently because yeah. because one, one, one of the it's, i didn't really understand again in this episode why the, the, there was one lupari ship that drifted out of the the shield which then required bell's ship to be recalled it was just like he's leaving why? Not sure. Okay. He's like, down. Like, yeah. Let's let's get another one in. I'm like, he's right there. Could you not like throw a cable up or something? Like it seems Could to be easier to get that one than to get one from like <laughs> light years away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again, I you know, I, I think you said about War of the Sontarans, about how you could see uh the hand of Chris Chibnall in, 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 <laughs> he in picked sort of... up Bell and was like, No, you go here. Yeah, yeah, there, there is there is a lot in this episode, as I said, of like, you know, he he's the puppet master and they're the chess pieces. That's an that's a mixed metaphor. But he, you know, where, he's like, I where, bought the wrong stuff. <laughs> but like, but no, it does feel a lot like there's as I said, there's characters being moved into various places, uh, sometimes smoothly, sometimes less so, to get them where they need to be for next week. Yeah, because we got Vinda thrown into um passenger as well, don't we? So he kind of yeah. meets up with Diane, who's back. You know, Diane's sort of been around a bit, but not very much. But also isn't isn't the whole point of passenger aren't there meant to be thousands of people inside there but he just Millions, turns up and, imme- and immediately runs into diane which is which is hell, again hell of a coincidence maybe but, it's just yeah. you know you maybe it's sort of one of those weird spacey timey things where like oh you'll because he's looking for her or he's seen her before their spirits are drawn together i don't know you could have come up with some fake reason couldn't you <laughs> yeah, Do you know what i mean you like i mean we don't we don't, basically we don't know it's a kind of bizarre psychic sci-fi thing the whole passenger concept so it's kind of i, I because we don't know what the logic is of it do you know what i mean it's like when I saw some people saying about the Weeping Angels last week, you know, can an angel reforming a picture of itself that had been ripped up to be able to become an angel, does that make sense? It might not with another monster, but because the Weeping Angels are so weird and unknowable, you kind of take mm. it. And I think maybe that's mm. the same with Passenger, because it's so weird. Um, speaking of weird and slightly unknowable things, I think we should talk about what I would consider probably the meat of the episode is the whole Dr. Tecteun division thing, um, mm. which is sort of... It's basically the direct sequel to the Timeless Children. I was surprised that we kind of met Tecteun again, actually. I kind of thought they just wouldn't revisit that kind of character. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's me. It's that old woman you met before. I am Tecteun. Ha-ha. Um, and it's kind of a bit like, I was a bit like, oh, right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I kind of, I was like, okay, it's just the, this person who runs this is exactly the other person we've heard of. And, yeah. you know. Well, I, I, you know, I guess, because you could have you could have done it in such a way that Orsok... Um, is a different character and is mm. now just head of the division. And so as a result of that, knows about the Doctor and knows about the Doctor's memories being wiped and also has, and now has them in storage, could even have been the character who was responsible responsible for wiping the Doctor's memories. I might be wrong, but I don't think we knew for 100% that it was Tech Taeyun who was responsible for Well, that. no, it was implied that um, Tech Taeyun left a message for the Doctor um, hidden in the weird Brendan flashbacks to kind of tease what the truth was so i think it was maybe that you know and the master was speculating that maybe it was like uh, felt feeling guilty or something and i think that was maybe the sort of like i didn't really you know it wasn't even suggested that tetium was like really in the division you know she comes well she when he was a he uh comes with the doctor for like the interview um and that's kind of the extent of it do you know what i mean like we didn't realize yeah. that she was like big in the organization itself um so yeah it's it's interesting as you say i guess you can see why they've done that because it means that the person who's the head of a division, which is the thing the doctor is looking for, is the same person the doctor has like personal beef with. In that, so it, she can shout at her about, you know, you should have left me under that wormhole, blah blah blah. Mm. Um, like it kind of it, it makes things simpler, I think. So I get why they've done it. I don't know. It just I feel like it was it was sort of telegraphed as a big moment, where I was, I was just a bit like, oh right, do you know what I mean? I don't I I, I don't know. It just didn't well, really hit with me. I think I think also it's a slightly odd move to reintroduce Tecteon only to then immediately kill mm. her off. Yeah. Um because because it is obviously a huge character <clears throat> now, we know, in, in terms of the doctor's like personal mythology and the mythology of the series as a whole. And it's it's essentially the doctor's mother or stepmother. It's the character responsible for bringing her to Gallifrey. It's one of the founding members of Time Lord Society, and then is killed by Swarm. Who like yeah. n- like nothing against Swarm, but like I, I think Swarm's a great villain, but it feels that fe- that felt slightly odd to me that this character was reintroduced with such kind of 
you know, sense of grandeur, and then and then just immediately offed because they're no longer um, required for this particular story. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting as well. It was we got a bit more confirmation about um, Tectoyo and Slash the Division's plot in that they kind of they designed the flux as a like a thing. It's not really explained how they did that, but they designed the flux as a thing to like physically destroy the universe. And they threw in Swarm and Asia because they're like, well, look, we're gonna. We're going to blow up this universe anyway, so no risk. Zero risk, you know, high reward. We're, just in case the flux thing doesn't work, we're going to, like, put these time-eating weird monster guys that we fought before. We're going to sort of send them around to distract the Doctor, I guess, um, you know, so that she's not too doing that. And then, you know, even when that didn't work, they were like, oh, God, look, we're just going to have to take the Doctor out. Just let it all burn away, and then we'll bring her back with us but wait then that wasn't the point that they were trying to destroy the universe to destroy the doctors when they were like oh no actually you can come with us to this universe and i'm like mm, that seems like that's, you've not really you've sort of forgotten why you started this whole project <laughs> i think um also yeah, it was a pretty bad lost. move to be like oh yeah let's release swarm because then you know he just sort of turned up and killed them like it was not that they could have probably just done the flux thing i think i think that would have been enough <laughs> Yeah, it's maybe maybe overkill. Um, it's really what I did, a hat what, on a hat, isn't it? Yeah. No. What what I did like though is that. Well, what I liked is that um, the even though we discover more to an extent about the Doctor's origins, um, there's still some ambiguity there because, as I said, mm. I think it would be. I've said this before. I think it would be strange to throw out the Doctor's old origins reintroduce the mystery only to give us a bunch of new answers and it's it's actually you know the doctors from this place rather than that place like for me the whole the success of the timeless child timeless children reveal was to re-establish the mystery not to just get rid of one origin for another origin um so i like that there's still some ambiguity as to you know which universe exactly the doctor is from did the doctor come out of the wormhole or was the doctor about to go through the wormhole and there's all that kind of all that kind of mystery that being said the next time trailer seems to imply that the doctor's going to get her memories back but i'm guessing that's a that's a red herring that's you know that's a that's a that's a trick of the editing because it would be again it would be odd to having established that the doctor has this mysterious past she can't remember to then immediately give her everything she wants and to and to restore it all and again this this episode survivors of the flux seems to be hinting that the the ultimate choice for the doctor will be save the universe or get your memories back. Yeah. And, and obviously the doctor will make the selfless choice and pre presumably lose her memories forever. Um, or, you know, or so she thinks in order to, to save everyone else. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. But that is, that feels to me what they're kind of teeing up with the whole, like, you know, the, the, watch but giving it a very physical thing you can just look at it's quite clever doing the whole pocket watch things obviously that is specifically that's the part of the chameleon arch thing that turns someone human but we have seen it to be you know a storage unit for time lord memories so it kind of works but you know what i mean and it creates a physical you know manifestation of the thing that the doctor wants it's like a thing she can go and grab and open and it'll be like poof memories mm. so yeah i think that even, you know, it might even come down to, in classic David Tennant style, you know, maybe she has the choice between, like, saving Yaz or saving, you know, her friends mm. and getting her memories. And obviously, you know, after, you know, as a flip point to the end of uh, Once Upon Time where she's shouting at them for, like, stopping her finding that stuff out, maybe she's like, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. I am who I am now. Which is basically the same lesson she's learned twice already, once in the Timeless Children and then again in Revolution of the Dark. She'd be like, actually, it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm the Doctor now and I'm great. Actually, on a side note, I did think that a bit. When she was shouting at Tectiona about how you should have left me, you know, whatever. I think maybe you would feel like that. And the Doctor is quite a sort of, I'd say she's quite a principled person. So it's a point of principle with the Doctor mm. that it's wrong to do that. But as a viewer who has, you know, loved the Doctor's adventures and once, you know, enjoyed so many nice memories with Doctor Who, it is a little, so you're sort of a bit like, well, I'm glad Doctor Who didn't leave you there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it is yeah. it is a strange sort of double, and not entirely joking, like, it's a strange double sentence in terms of a doctor has done some amazing things. She has had a, you know, a life that she's enjoyed. She has saved so many people. She's met so many interesting people, been all over the place. It did seem to me interesting that they were kind of, Jodie Whittaker was so like, oh, I can't believe you didn't just leave me there. For a life she doesn't even remember versus, like, the life she has now. I feel like there's a bit more... It's a funny one because it's a point of principle, right? And I kind of do think that this version of the doctor would think that, but... When you're watching it as a viewer, you kind of disagree. And I think that's quite an interesting kind of counterpoint. Like we don't want the mm. Doctor necessarily to have lived that other life. We don't even necessarily, you know, want the Doctor to change. We want the Doctor to be who the Doctor is now. And I think the Doctor has slightly different motives to the audience in this. And I think that's quite 
an interesting kind of a bit of grip, which I don't think is entirely intentional, but it's just something I was thinking. I was a bit like, but if they had left you there, then you wouldn't have done any, you wouldn't have met Yaz, you wouldn't have met, you know, met the millions of other companions you've had. You wouldn't have gone to this, you know, you haven't have sealed the Medusa Cascade and defeated the Daleks and all this stuff. Like, in the moment, maybe you wouldn't think that, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, am I overthinking this? Is this just no? I I, I do think, but I think you're right in that it's, it's a point of principle. It's that mm. idea of there's a there's a line where I think where they, the doctor says something like, "Well, I'll I'll never know now." Like mm. Tectayun says, "Would you have been better off if I'd left you there?" And the doctor says, "I'll never know." And I think that's it. I think I, think I don't think right. the I think doctor that explains I, it. Yeah, I don't think the doctor is de- necessarily disappointed or or um, ashamed of the life she, you know he she has led um, and. and uh, yeah, so I, I don't think that's it. I just think in that immediate, quite emotional moment, the Doctor is saying, I could have had a whole different life. It may have been worse, it may have been better, but the point is I'll never know, and you denied me that, and you mm. kind of interfered and and changed the, the direction of my life without my knowledge or permission. So I don't think it's necessarily saying, the Doctor's saying, I am I wish I was never the Doctor. But I but, but I think you're right, it's kind of, it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting point where the doctor is angry about the, the life they've led, um, which obviously the audience doesn't doesn't reciprocate that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I I'm interested in how they're going to end all this. Like I think on the whole, and I've written about this on dot on radiotimes.com, um, I think that this has been a very strong series. Uh, I like, agree, you yeah. know, and I think it's definitely a lot of people have been saying it's the best Chris Chibnall, Jodie Whittaker kind of series we've seen so far. I do hope that like not to be too sort of blunt, but I hope that this episode was where they needed to fit a lot of this sort of exposition and moving pieces around storytelling so that the finale can be a bit more, a bit more action packed and have a bit more of an, an emotional through line rather than just informational. Yeah. Because I really want this to end on a high. Like I do feel like if you look at series 12, um, I feel I was rewatching a few episodes of that before this series. I rewatched Ascension of a Cyberman. I was like, you know what? This is actually pretty good. Like, I actually really quite like, enjoy this episode. And it was, I think I completely forgot about that because there was such a strong reaction to the Timeless Children the week after. And, you know, however you feel about the revelations in that episode, I didn't really mind that so much. I do feel like the execution of that episode, you know, could have been maybe a little bit more exciting. And I think that that kind of poisoned the whole discussion of that entire series. You know, mm. like, I think people were always like, oh yeah, you know, because the ending was so rubbish or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. I don't think it was rubbish, but you know what I mean? I think that was kind of what a lot of people said. And I do hope that this series, you know, as much as we've been enjoying it, we've been saying, oh, this is great, this is good. If it doesn't end in a way that people really enjoy, I feel like if people will just dismiss the entire thing, which I think would be yeah. a shame, you know? So I, I'm really, I'm really, that's the thing as a Doctor Who fan, you're, it's, it's weird because you're always sort of willing it to succeed like a sort of yeah. you know, lower tier football team or something. You really want them to <laughs> yeah, do better, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> and like, um, so I'm kind of hoping that the finale is a little bit more like, like I thought that, I know we disagree slightly on this, but Halloween Apocalypse, I felt like was this sort of stuff done slightly better in that it was still quite, you know, exciting and fast paced. And, you know, War on the Sun Tyrants as well, you know, generally speaking. Even Once Upon Time, which I know some people didn't like, so maybe that would be, I felt like there was like, because there was another aspect to it, the kind of weird dreamlike stuff, I felt like, you know, that kind of could get away with this stuff more. This episode felt to me just like, here's the information you need for the finale. And if that is the case, mm. and then the finale is like really, really good, that's totally fine. It's a serialized story. It has to have these acts, right? It has these like, these sort of peaks and troughs. But I just hope that we're kind of going to get a, a finale that will sort of tie everything up in a really satisfying way ahead of the specials. I mean, obviously the specials can finish some stuff off. So we don't necessarily need to you know, answer absolutely every question. I guess I'm basically my this very rambling point is I hope the finale is good. <laughs> yeah, no, but I I think you're right in that episode five, probably more so than any other of the previous episodes, we'll know how we feel about it more once we've seen episode six because it yes. is the episode, as I said, that feels the most functional. All, all of the other ones had their own kind of strengths and merits to a greater or lesser degree. This one felt the most like um, yeah, it, it existed purely to kind of bridge episode four or the previous four episodes to the finale. So, uh, you know, you, I think we, we may feel slightly more positive towards it if there's an incredible finale. Um, and I think you're right as well about how much is going to be resolved is, is an interesting question because, yes, there's the specials coming up, so potentially there's there's um, scope to leave some strands um, you know, uh, unexplored, untied off. Um, but then again, the next episode is uh, the New Year's Day special, which, you know, traditionally the sort of the festive specials have been a bit more standalone. Mm. So at the very, at the very least, yeah, it sounds like they're going to put um, any revelations or hanging plot threads on pause 
until we get to maybe I don't know the Easter special. Um, but, you know, it's 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 kind of hard to think how the division and 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 Tacteon and the question of the Doctor's lost memories might factor into what's presumably going to be you know larks with Ashling B and elves. Um, you know, maybe 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 there's a balance to be struck there, but I feel like that's that's tricky. You kind of want those those big festive specials to be as accessible as possible. Um, you you definitely wouldn't air Survivors of the Flux on New Year's Day, right? Um, so that's going to be interesting as well to see to what degree they kind of tie off not only the Flux storyline, but a lot of the stuff that's been developing over the Chris Chibnall, Jodie Whisker era. And then maybe the specials are kind of like a, you know, like a, a lap of victory. Yeah. Um, and it's all just, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fun New Year's Day special. There's, I don't know, for example, like a multi-doctor special um, for the centenary. And, and, and it's just kind of, um, like I say, like a lap of, a lap of victory. Um, and everything actually gets resolved in the vanquishers we'll have to wait and see yeah and we won't have to wait that long luckily uh we'll be back next week with our review of the vanquishers uh, so you can see what we thought of that and you know whether our predictions were right or in right incorrect probably <laughs> <laughs> right or in right sorry uh my language is going but yes um before that though before we go we have time for our usual segment of controversial question of the week controversial question of the week Uh, obviously, this week, uh, or recently at least, depending on when you're listening to this, was Doctor Who Day, uh, 23rd of November, uh, which is the anniversary of Doctor Who's creation. Um, and we were looking at all the pictures of William Hartnell and, uh, you know, some of the other Doctors. And we were thinking, uh, our controversial question this week is essentially, is it ever okay to recast the Doctor? Obviously, it's been done. We've had uh, Richard Herndall, I think, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously David Bradley uh, more recently as the first Doctor. We've had um, John Hurt's been recast in the Big Finish stories, uh, and we've occasionally had other uh, Doctors recast for audio. But, you know, broadly speaking, is it okay in certain circumstances? Is it okay in all circumstances? What if the actor is still alive, but maybe for you know medical reasons or personal reasons doesn't want to do it anymore you know could we recast save a ninth doctor you know i mean it feels incredibly wrong but um you know that's what this controversial thing's for i mean morgan you kind of proposed this question to me what is your opinion on it yes i proposed this question and now i don't really have a clear opinion on it either way no <laughs> i i think it's i think it's an interesting one i think it, it, there's degrees to which to which you can do it right so initially to me it feels just just wrong to do it like you sort of think no one can replace William Hartnell, no one can replace Patrick Trout, no one can replace uh, John Pertwee. But then you see the likes of David Bradley doing it, doing it very well, and you think, well, this works. This works really nicely. And so maybe you can revisit uh, the character of the First Doctor with a different actor playing the role, providing you get the right actor. So it's it's very much one of those things that, in theory, sounds wrong, um, but in practice, can actually work quite well as you know as you mentioned big finish of of uh of, of recast older doctors you know act, doctors played by actors who are no longer with us that's a slightly smoother transition obviously because it's just um the voice you know you mentioned the war doctor and they've got um jonathan carley doing the voice of of the war doctor and he sounds like identical to john hurt it's it's a little bit kind of you close your eyes and you you think it was john hurt um so so i so i think i think it depends i think if the actor is no longer with us and there is an appropriate actor to step into the fold like david bradley i'm i'm on board with it we've talked before about how like if you were going to bring back the third doctor get sean pertwee in like he mm. looks he looks like i think a few years ago right he did he did for halloween he dressed up as the third doctor and again it was like if you squint it's pretty much bang on and also i think you were saying that anyone who would he's he's probably the person who may have some objection to his dad's role being recast. And if he were to be interested in doing that, that kind of resolves that slightly, you know, is is this okay? Is it okay to do that? So something like that, I think, would work. I think the question of recasting existing Doctors, if they were to not come back for any other reason, that to me feels, feels different. I don't think I'd be on board with that. Like, you could argue, say, Tom Baker now doesn't look like Tom Baker did in the 1970s, obviously. So should you cast someone who looks like Tom Baker and sounds like Tom Baker did in the 1970s? I say, I'd say still no. I think like fans would still rather have Tom Baker as he looks now 
in full fourth doctor regalia for the 60th and you just kind of you know you, you just kind of let it go and, and you know, take a leap of imagination um ra- rather than recast i think you'd still rather have the original cast where possible I think you're right. I think as well with David Bradley, it feels a little different because obviously he played William Hartnell in a drama and then that led mm. to him being cast. So that was kind of a bridging step there. Yeah, um, that's true. Uh, so it, it wasn't as simple as like, let's cast someone else to be William Hartnell. It was kind of like, you know, let's cast someone who has already been William Hartnell. And, you know, obviously like Rhys Shearsmith was Patrick Troughton in that episode. Nothing anyone's calling out for Rhys Shearsmith to be the new second Doctor, not, he, including Rhys Shearsmith. I don't think he'd mind us saying that. Like, um, you know, I think David Bradley did a particularly good job. And I think maybe that's why they could do it in that sort of special circumstance. But yeah, more generally, I think it's a, it's a tricky one. Like, so, you know, let's say, please, devil's advocate, say Tom Baker approves you know this new doctor he's like yes this is the person i want you know they're going to be the new fourth doctor in this new you know multi-doctor special and i'm gonna you know i'm consulting or something you could maybe sort of do it a bit like that but it would still feel a bit wrong do you know what i mean like it would mm. it even if he approved you'd be a bit like ah, it's not him though do you know what i mean oh the for me the what's special about multi-doctor stories is not just like multiple versions of the doctor meeting it's all those actors together mm. right so so what's exciting about to take a random example what's exciting about time crash is not that it's well i mean it is that it's the fifth doctor and the tenth doctor but it's also that it's peter davison and david tennant who both played the doctor and they're sharing a scene which is something that rarely if ever happens that's what why it's exciting oh my god we love david tennant we loved matt smith and now they're both in it together this is that's what's exciting so if you were to recast any of those roles it it, it loses that because you have as much as you have an affection for the doctor and for maybe a particular incarnation of the Doctor, you also really have an uh, affection for the character. Because Christopher Eccleston didn't want to be part of the 50th. The original script for Day of the Doctor featured the Ninth Doctor. You could theoretically then have recast the Ninth Doctor. Mm. But th- but but why? Fan- fans would want to see Christopher Eccleston back. They don't, not to say they don't care about the Ninth Doctor, but you, y- the impact would be so much lessened if it was just someone else in a leather jacket. Like, it's not the same thing. Um, even if they were doing a really good Christopher Eccleston impersonation. So they went the route of the War Doctor. I think, I think for, for a variety of reasons, David Bradley is a bit of a special case in that he, as you say, he'd kind of had an, an, an audition. Um, he played it so well. And and that so now it kind of feels okay. So I think also I think someone answer, else had played the first Doctor since William Hartnell's death already. Precedent. Yeah, that precedent, was a precedent yeah. for it. Yeah. So I think the answer: Can you recast the Doctor? Is probably yes, but with a lot of, of kind caveats, of, uh, lot of footnotes. Uh, yeah, lot 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 of caveats and qualifiers. Essentially, that's the that's the answer. Yeah. Um, although, you know, obviously, when we hear tomorrow that uh, they've recast, you know, shock horror, Peter Capaldi has been recast to be some rant. Craig Ferguson is the 12th Doctor. Uh, or, or, Chris, Mar- Chris Marshall is finally going to play the Doctor, but he's actually he's actually playing the 4th Doctor yeah, in the yeah, Centenary yeah. Special. I mean, I mean I'd, still, I'd still watch it. I mean, even just morbidly. So, you know, I mean, maybe we shouldn't judge. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's I think it's always a tricky area. And I think no matter how, you know, no matter what, it's fans can suspend their disbelief. You can come up with some mad time reason for why all the doctors look a bit different. It's a bit of fun. Do you know what I mean? Like part of it is, is it's a bit of fun. It doesn't all need to line up with the show's often wonky internal logic. Mm. You know, like we can kind of just make it up. You know, Tom Baker can come back as a kind of weird past future version of the Doctor called the Curator. And everyone's like, yeah, that was awesome. And it's way better than if you got <laughs> yeah. some guy in a wig with a big scarf running around going exactly. like, ooh. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I think that's probably the answer. Um, I mean, if you guys listening have any other dif- have different opinions to us, uh, please let us know. Um you can let us know on Twitter or whatever. Uh, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, uh, be that with Apple or Spotify or iTunes or whatever various products you can listen to podcasts on. Um, we'll be back next week uh, for our review of The Vanquishers. Um, mm. And yeah, and that'll be our final Series 13 review, but not the final episode of this podcast, I should think. We will have a few more after that. Um, but yeah, we will have more news and other fun features. Um, yeah, so see you then. Until then, I've been Hugh. I've been Morgan. Uh, and you are now survivors of the Survivors of the Flux Doctor Who podcast. Congratulations and goodbye. Thanks for listening to our Doctor Who podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. And for more brilliant Doctor Who content, check out radiotimes.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com